On January 25th, I attended the funeral of my father, Glenn Pearson. He had taken his own life with a pistol. My mother, the cause of their separation years prior due to her addiction, wasn't there. I don't recall what the well-wishers said as they shook my hand or embraced me, just the parade of sad faces and forced smiles through tears. Once he was interred, I said my goodbyes, made some non-committal promises to visit more often, and drove home. I took my coat and shoes off, curled up on the couch, and cried until I fell asleep. The following week, Russo, my father's landlord, asked me to clean out his things from the house. He told me to take my time, but if I couldn't get it done by the end of the month, he would have to throw everything out. I wasn't sure if I could handle going in there, but I agreed anyway. There was no will, nothing to inherit, so it fell to me to sort his personal belongings. I told him I would be there the next morning, and he gave me the combination for the lock on the door. I didn't sleep well that night. In fact, I think the only time I did sleep a full night was after the funeral. My brain just wanted to shut down and skip to a time where I could process things, I suppose. I finally gave up a little after 5am and made a pot of coffee. I made a mental note to buy some melatonin while I was out. The TV had nothing interesting on, but I watched it anyway as I drank from my thermos. Zoning out to random shows was the closest I got to dreaming. The house was in Weston a 20-minute drive. A light snow had started when I left, but stopped by the time I reached the house. He had lived in a small suburb in the southeast corner of town, within walking distance from the gas station, and nestled between two larger houses with quiet neighbors. One of them had called the police when they heard the gunshot. I didn't know which one. I had a banker's box tucked under my arm for what I might want to take home for the first trip. A lockbox hung over the doorknob, the kind of realtor would use for self-showings. I put in the combination, two, two, eight. A single key was inside for the doorknob, a new door to replace the one that was broke through by the first responders. The frame was still cracked and splintered. It was almost hot inside. He always ran the thermostat high in the winter. The scent hit me, and as I looked at the empty living room, a knot formed in my throat. I pushed it back as best as I could and started with what I wouldn't take. The furniture could be donated. It's clothes, too. Nothing in the kitchen was worth saving apart from the pictures on the fridge. I swept the house and added a few things to the box. A binder that he kept important documents in, his rainy day fund from the cabinet over the fridge, and the pictures. None were of himself, mostly me, as a kid. I wasn't going to do anything with them, but I felt weird throwing them away. I was consciously avoiding the bedroom. That was where they had found him. I didn't know the details, but my mind filled in gaps I wish it wouldn't have. It got to the point where I couldn't put it off anymore, and I had to go in. I pushed the door open slowly and just stood there. The bed was unmade, clothes in a pile next to the hamper. It still smelled like bleach. I went to the nightstand first. There was an alarm clock close to the edge, and next to it a coffee cup with a puck of dried coffee caked to the bottom. It was a cup I had painted for him in school, and when I gave it to him he made a big show of throwing the one he had in his hand into the trash and filled up the new one instead, and made me laugh. I put the cup in the box and opened the nightstand drawer. Random bits of paper, some batteries, glasses case, nothing that really meant anything to me. I stepped towards the closet at the foot of the bed, 
and it occurred to me that I would be passing through the spot where it happened if I hadn't already. I tried to keep the image out of my head. I had the sensation I was trespassing, being in his room, and that any moment he could walk in and ask what I was doing. The only thing in the closet apart from clothes and linen was a small portable safe tucked away in the corner. It was light, about the size of an envelope. The contents shifted as I put it in the box. I had left his key ring at home since the lock was changed, so I couldn't open it. I decided I was done for the day. I'd have to come back with the truck or van to load up everything to donate. I grabbed the box and went out to the front door, making one last mental note of everything left to do. It had started snowing again, the dark clouds turning the world a pallid gray. I put the banker's box in the back floorboard, wedged against the passenger seat so it wouldn't slide. The roads weren't bad, it hadn't been cold long enough for the snow to stick or the pavement to ice over, but they were still wet. I backed out of the driveway and went to the pharmacy up the road. It was a mom-and-pop store next to a used car dealership advertising no credit checks. The closest parking spaces were all handicapped, so I parked in the back corner. I was the only customer that morning. A bell rang as I walked in, wiping my shoes on the mat. An old man sat behind the counter. He asked if I needed help with anything and pointed me in the right direction. As I was deciding which sleep aid to get, the best price to quantity value, the clerk called out, is that a friend of yours? He was pointing out the window. There was a man in a large coat and hood, hands cupped around his eyes and his face close to the glass, looking into the passenger side of my car. The tinted pharmacy windows must have hid me from view because he studied them before reaching out to try the handle. I put the bottle on the counter and dashed out the door, calling out. He withdrew his hand and stood there, unmoving. I crossed the lot and loudly asked, Can I help you? I closed in on him and stopped a few feet away. This is my car, what do you think you're doing? I demanded. I told him if he didn't leave, I would call the police. He studied me carefully. He was older, pale blue eyes, a short scar across his clean-shaven chin. He tilted his head and furrowed his brow. Not a menacing gesture, but one of deep thought, like he was trying to solve an equation or puzzle. You don't know what you have, he said. He looked back at the car, at the box and the seat. Then he said, I can hear it, and so will you. He looked back at me and put his hands up in an attempted, non-threatening gesture. I can help you, he said. I couldn't tell if he was under the influence of anything. His actions and words indicated someone not in their right mind, but his voice was even and measured. Leave or I will call the police, I affirmed. He looked in the car again. It dawned on me that I left my phone on the console, right in plain sight. I hoped that he didn't call my bluff. I also hoped that the man behind the counter was watching and could call the police. I kept my distance and his hand stayed up. You still have time, he said. What are you talking about? I asked. I'm going to reach into my coat chest pocket, he replied calmly. There's something in there I need to give you. He moved his hand toward his chest. I braced myself. I was a few steps away. If he had a gun, I might be able to close the distance before he could fire. If he had a knife, I was far enough away that I could turn and run. It was hard to tell what kind of shape he was in due to the heavy clothing, but seeing his age, I was confident I had more speed. His hand disappeared briefly and he revealed a small notebook. Opening to the first page, he tore it out and placed the book back in his pocket. He extended the page towards me 
holding his free hand back up. Take it, he offered. I didn't comply. After a moment, he put it on the roof of the car, brushing a bit of the accumulated snow over the edge to hold it in place. He took a step backward and lowered his hands. He took another step backward before zipping up the front of his coat, turning, and walking away, the thin layer of snow in the grass separating the parking lot from the dealership crunching under his feet. He passed between rows of used cars and soon turned out of sight at the end of the block, never looking back or changing pace. Once I was convinced he was gone, I picked up the paper. An address was written in half-cursive lettering, 802 Hibbick Road, Carterville. I grabbed my phone before heading inside to complete my purchase. The clerk said he had his hand on the phone while he was watching the situation. I thanked him, paid, then left for home. I set the box on the kitchen table next to the open mail and poured myself a drink, whiskey. My encounter earlier had left me a little shaken. It was not the best time for me to deal with things like that. I made lunch as I sipped my drink with every intention of having just the one, but the day I was having demanded another. Soon I was finished eating and grabbed my father's keys from the hook, and with my second drink in hand I planted myself in the recliner with the portable safe. A small bronze one did the trick. I raised the lid carefully, not sure what to expect. Inside was a single cigarette and a matchbook with the gas station logo on it. Underneath was an index card with bold capital letters and red marker stating, In Case of Emergency. I smiled for the first time in a week. I took them out and set them on the side table. I had just closed the lid, and as I moved the safe to put it on the table, I heard something shift inside. I opened it again to make sure I didn't miss an item. I shook it and could hear a soft rattle. Intrigued, I began examining the safe in detail. I poked and prodded and pulled on all the surfaces, testing for any sort of give or movement. I tapped the felt-lined bottom, and to my surprise, it sounded hollow. I took it to the kitchen and set it on the counter, retrieved the box knife from the catch-all drawer, and made a slight incision. The blade passed through unimpeded. I traced the inside of the box as delicately as I could, trying not to damage whatever hid underneath. I lifted the edge of the felt with the knife and removed it. A mini cassette tape was setting in a recess. No label or markings. Why would he go through so much trouble to hide it, I wondered. There was nothing I had that could play it, so a trip to town would be in order. Back at the recliner, I grabbed my laptop and pulled up a map, putting in the address from the paper. It was the location of a long-defunct train yard just outside of town proper, called DuPont Railways. It was abandoned before the turn of the century as new lines were built that bypassed that little corner of the state. There was little else I could find out about it, apart from it being owned by a holding company in Colorado. The satellite images weren't the most up-to-date, but from what they showed, there were still a number of train cars scattered around the lot, and the central building itself appeared in decent shape. Going there was a terrible idea, one that I didn't even entertain. The sky had darkened as snow fell, and the usual noises from outside were dampened by the accumulation. I picked up the remote and sprawled out on the couch. Just before I turned it on, I could hear a voice from outside. It sounded like a one-sided conversation. It stopped, then picked up again, this time slightly louder. I still wasn't able to make out words, though. 
It was suddenly louder, and the hair on my neck stood up as I traced the source to the bedroom. I rose out of my seat and looked into the hallway. No one was there. I took a few steps and waited. I took a few more. A person moved past the bedroom window at the end of the hall. It was my neighbor, talking on the phone, as she walked through our shared alley and went back inside. I exhaled in relief and chided myself. A knock on the door startled me. Not particularly loud or forceful, but sharp and punctual. I cleared my throat and called out, Who is it? To no response. Crossing the living room and looking through the peephole, I couldn't see anyone. I leaned over to the window and parted the blinds just enough to get a view of the porch. No one was there. I could just make out the edge of a small cardboard box leaning against the outside wall near the door. I wasn't expecting a package. I opened the door and the cold rushed in to greet me. A set of footprints were visible going from the sidewalk to my porch and back again. I stepped out and peered through the flakes as best I could to catch a glimpse of my visitor, but no luck. I brought the box inside and locked the door. Apart from my address on the sticker, the only other thing on the box was a handwritten note where the return address would be. A friend. Most likely a care package of sorts due to recent events, but the oddity of no return address gave me pause. Figuring it could be meant as a surprise, I retrieved the box knife again and cut the tape. The flap opened to reveal a mini cassette player. Several things went through my mind at once. A pit in my stomach formed as I realized that the strange man or someone with them must have followed me home. It grew stronger as I realized that they knew I had a tape. If they knew I had it, then they must have known my father had it. I gripped the knife and peeked through the blinds outside. The tracks were already gone. They could be watching from out of sight, sitting in a car or hidden behind any of the surrounding houses. I felt exposed. The sky turned from gray to black as I watched for indications of the strange man. Eventually, I left the window and went back to the box. I took out the player. An ordinary, but old piece of technology. I handled it as one would handle a venomous animal. Nothing seemed to be amiss, however. I pressed the eject button and the tray popped open smoothly. Curious, I put the tape in, pushed the tray closed, and rewound it to the beginning. What the tape had on it was of a level of importance I didn't understand yet. Important enough that my father hid it. Important enough that a stranger knew about it and wanted me to listen to it. I hesitated, then pressed play. The speaker crackled to life, then a warbling drone played for a moment before giving way to voices with background static. There were several voices in low conversation. They rose and fell. Some shuffling movement could be heard every few seconds. It sounded like a dinner party, the overall quietness giving the impression of something formal. I strained to make out any specific words, but it was so overlapped that nothing was clear. Droning rose and overtook the conversations, and when it cleared up again it was quieter, predominantly background noise with what I thought at first to be small hisses, but turned out to be sniffling. A man's voice sounded from far away gentle and assuring. His voice became more clear the longer he spoke, and I began catching words, snippets of his speech. It sounded familiar, so I turned up the volume. Then he spoke the words, 
I met Glenn twelve years ago, and my breath caught. I instantly realized why it was familiar. I was listening to my father's eulogy. The recording was from the funeral. I pressed stop and blinked hard. The memory of the casket, of the cold skin, all of it hit again with full force. As much as it hurt to hear, I found my hand moving. I pressed play. The speech continued as the audio crackled sporadically. It warbled again, and the sounds faded until it was background noise. I moved my finger to the stop button, but hesitated before pressing it down. Something was quietly cutting through. I could hear padded footsteps, softly but growing louder, then stopping. I looked toward the window. The blinds were closed, illuminated by the porch light. A mounting fear and panic had gripped me. A loud knock from the tape made me jump. Then a throat cleared, and my voice, in perfect clarity, came from the speaker. Who is it? I slammed the stop button and grabbed the largest knife from the block. The air was still, and apart from my ragged breathing, nothing else could be heard. Adrenaline coursed through me as for the next half hour I slowly and meticulously checked every corner of every room for an intruder. After multiple rounds, I found nothing, and the door remained locked, and I don't know if that made me feel better or worse. Knife still in hand, I stared at the cassette player. The possibilities were too absurd for explanation. I could reason away the funeral, since a week would be plenty of time for someone to record it and plant it in the safe. The last part, though, I couldn't find an answer no matter how much I racked my brain. It hadn't moved from the counter. Someone would have needed to break in, record me, place the tape in the exact spot I left it, and get out of the house without me ever seeing them. I rewound the tape all the way and played it again. This time, no sound came, only the warm ambience of the speaker being on and the turning of the gears as the tape played. I rewound it again. The tape was effectively blank. Stop. Rewind. Play. Repeat. I felt like I was losing it. I took the tape out and set it on the counter. Old and ordinary. I poured another drink with my unsteady hands. A low hum was filling my ears. I had never hallucinated before, but that was the only thing I could think of. It was an emotional day. I had been under stress. It wasn't impossible. But that still didn't explain the cassette player delivery. I recalled my earlier encounter suddenly. He had been looking in the back of the car on the passenger side, where the portable safe was hidden away inside the box. Couldn't have been a coincidence, could it? I stepped away from the counter and player, and the hum subsided. I paused and shook my head, then backed up several feet. At this distance, it was barely audible. If this was another hallucination, it was a very convincing one. I moved back to the counter, and the hum grew intensely. It had to be something wrong with the player. I picked it up and moved the speaker to my ear, and it grew louder. I flipped it over, traded the knife temporarily for a screwdriver, and opened up the battery compartment. It was empty. It took a full minute for the sound to stop almost completely after I had set it back on the counter and stared, too petrified to move. Finally back in control, I cautiously picked up the tape. As soon as I touched it, 
The hum filled my head. I dropped it onto the counter involuntarily, and it stopped. Backing away while never taking my eyes off of it, I remembered the man's words. I can hear it, and so will you. He knew something I didn't, something about whatever this was. And now, I needed that information. As much as I didn't want to, going to the train yard was becoming my only recourse. He was my best chance for answers. That night, I slept with every light on and the knife next to me. A large rusted gate at the entrance of DuPont Railways was bent open just enough for a person to shimmy through. It was bitingly cold, though the snow had stopped overnight. I sat in the car for several minutes talking myself into going inside. A no trespassing sign vainly tried deterring visitors, but the broken camera just above it made it much less effective. A handful of graffitied train cars were scattered along the tracks, a long building behind them with a tall, narrow tower protruding from the back corner. The windows had all been broken out, and sheet metal had been put up from the inside in their place. I finally killed the engine and got out, a sudden gust of wind hitting my face. I called out and received no answer. Cautiously, I made my way to the opening and squeezed inside, the snow making discretion impossible with the noise it made under my boots. I crossed the set of tracks carefully and trudged towards the building. A staircase on the side offered an easy way up the raised platform. I was about to call out again, but stopped as I saw a figure enter through the bent gate. The hooded man raised his hand in greeting and joined me on the platform. You don't have it with you, were his first words. I had left it at home in the player, not having touched it again after the experience the night before. No, I answered. His features were softer, more receptive than the first time I saw him. I asked him how he knew about the tape. He told me to follow him and we could talk. He took out a key ring and unlocked the solid metal door leading inside. He entered and I followed, keeping a good distance between us. We were in a large, mostly empty space, save for some wooden chairs and a small metal barrel. A sizable hole in the corner of the roof allowed some light in, and a door on the far wall led to another room. He asked I close the door behind us, and I obliged. Once shut, he turned and removed his hood, revealing a buzzed head with white stubble. He introduced himself as Pruitt and apologized that he had been so secretive. He wasn't sure if our conversation was private. He lit a fire in the barrel and offered me a seat next to it. I took it, and he sat opposite me. I again asked him how he knew about the tape. He said that he was with my father when it was made. I was taken aback, and he elaborated that he knew my father from college. He had recently moved to the area and gotten back in touch, wanting to catch up with a familiar face after being away for so long. They were at my father's house relaxing after dinner when my father asked if Pruitt could hear someone talking in the other room. Pruitt said no, and my father went into the guest room, asking how it was possible he couldn't hear it when it was so loud and clear. Pruitt followed and confessed to hear nothing, first thinking it was a joke. He said my father went to the closet, pulled out an old tape recorder, rushed to put new batteries in, and started recording the now silent room. He stopped and played it back, and to Pruitt's surprise, he heard himself talking to my father from moments before. My father was excitedly listening, exclaiming that he could hear him talking. Then his face fell, and he became horrified frantically stopping the tape after a few moments. 
He spoke in fragments to himself, mumbling under his breath. Pruitt asked what he was talking about, and my father insisted he leave. He said he wasn't feeling well and apologized. Pruitt left, but was convinced something abnormal was at play. He checked in on my father the next day and found the door ajar. He let himself in and found my father in the bathroom, curled up in the empty tub. He had drawn a symbol on the wall in soap, a symbol that Pruitt said was one of protection to ward off evil. He woke him up and he seemed confused for a moment before recognizing that he was in the bathroom. He said he had a nightmare, and in the dream the symbol was the only thing that protected him. Pruitt noted that he had a fever and helped him get to bed, telling him that he needed some rest. That was the last time he saw him. Two days later is when they found him. Since that evening, Pruitt had been researching practically nonstop, trying to find out what exactly was happening. He spoke of various findings, how entities, he never used the words ghost or demon or spirit, could communicate with us and affect us. I asked him what I should do with the tape. He said he believed it was a window to another place and that something from that place was the cause of my father's death. I asked him why not destroy it. He explained that after the window had opened it couldn't be closed, but through it the entity had little influence. If the tape were destroyed, that window would become a door and allow it to fully pass through. He told me he didn't know how much time I had. The longer I kept the tape, the longer I was under its influence. If I wanted to be safe, I would need to give it to someone else. I asked if he could take it, and he declined. He said he had already been affected by it. It would make short work of him. Then why not bury it, hide it away forever? He stoked the fire. When you found the tape, he answered, moving a piece of wood from the edge, did you already have a player to listen to it? He looked up. Or did one just happen to show up when you needed it? I told him about the odd delivery. That's what these connections, these totems, do, he said. They have a nasty way of showing back up in your life. With a history of dire consequences, he added solemnly. They torment and grow stronger from it. They squeeze out every ounce of pain, then consume you or take you. Right at the end, though, they find a way to make sure the totem changes hands. I believe that's why your father did what he did, to try and stop it. He understood what it was capable of in the end and refused to pass it on. But it still found its way to you, the person he cherished most, either by accident or by design, and I find both equally discomforting. What you're saying is insane. You realize that, right? I asked. And yet here you are, he replied. So give the tape to someone, and they give it to someone else, and it just keeps going like that? For how long? I asked. A gust of wind made the metal groan, and the door in the room slammed open. The fire was suddenly snuffed out by the frigid blast. Pruitt reached inside his collar and withdrew a talisman on a rope string. He gripped it firmly, and the wind died down. Only long enough to find a way to stop it permanently, he finally said. I think the tape is a vessel this thing has used to gain access to our world. If it's the only one, and we can neutralize it, we can cut it off for good. He stood up. Either way, I suggest you pass it along soon. It'll take you 
he handed me a scrap of paper with a sketch on it. I wondered if he kept paper on him at all times. It's the same one your father drew. Draw it somewhere in your house. It might buy you more time. You should get back home and decide what you'll do, he said. It took him in three days, and by my count, you're already on day two. We exchanged numbers and I told him to call me if he came across anything. He had some contacts that he was going to visit after our meeting and would hopefully have something for me by morning. A heaviness fell as I walked back to the car. A death sentence had been imposed on me, one that defied logic, reason, and reality. I mulled over his words as I drove home. It was too much for my rational mind to fully accept. Nothing like that should be possible, but I couldn't deny what I heard on the tape. If this was true as Pruitt said, then giving the tape to someone would buy us time to figure out how to stop it. But that would mean pulling another person into the madness and condemning them to the same fate. If I refused to give it away, the people closest to me would likely be in my situation next. And if they didn't take it seriously, they would suffer. As the front door closed behind me, I stared at the player an unassuming relic that had upended everything I thought about my life and the world. Pruitt had said that there were others like it out there, more totems. That knowledge filled me with dread. I needed to clear my mind and try to form a plan. I took a long shower with the bathroom door locked. After dressing, I rummaged through the catch-all drawer until I found a permanent marker, then did the best I could to replicate the drawing on the paper to the wall between the front door and the window. It looked shaky and slightly off, so I drew a smaller one below it that was a scale copy. That one turned out almost exactly like the paper. Pruitt hadn't mentioned anything about the size or exactness of the symbol. I decided that between the two, I had it covered. I sat on the couch and tried to formulate a plan. Would I give it to someone random? Someone I disliked? There wasn't anyone that I wanted to pass it to. I briefly entertained the idea of giving it to someone terminally ill, but if they died without passing it along, it could go to whoever was closest to them. I couldn't curse the ones that I loved, but would I be able to curse others? No one would believe it, and by the time that they did, it would be too late. I desperately hoped Pruitt and his associates would find a way out of the madness. In theory, it should be easy to get it out of my life and let a complete stranger deal with it, with appropriate warnings afterward to give them a chance. In practice, I wasn't that cold. It didn't help that I knew a hidden countdown was running somewhere, ticking away until the inevitable, until the choice was no longer my own. The night afforded no sleep, and I decided I would power through with coffee. I was halfway through my third cup when the phone rang. I answered and Pruitt's voice was on the other end starting the call by apologizing for waking me. I told him no need. He said they had come across new information and might be close to figuring out how to prevent the tape from spreading to anyone else. The first good news I had received in a long time. I had to do something, however. I had to play the tape again. They needed me to describe what I heard. Don't panic and don't be fooled by it, Pruitt cautioned. It's listening to us now, and we'll go into self-preservation mode. I looked at the innocuous player, and a cold wave washed over me. I rewound the tape and rested my finger on the play button. Ready, I said. Pruitt acknowledged. 
I took a deep breath and pressed the button. It was only background noise at first. Static rose and groaned as the frequency shifted like tuning a radio. I related over the phone and Prude encouraged that I keep listening. They were cross-referencing information and what I heard could be the key to solving everything. The static faded to background noise again. Then words cut through in a way that I couldn't possibly be prepared for. Destroy the tape, son. Please. You have to. I weakly informed Pruitt. It's my dad. Stay calm, he insisted. What is it saying? I swallowed. He wants me to destroy it. Keep listening, but be prepared to stop it in case things start getting out of hand, Pruitt responded. My father's voice came over the tape. It's the only way. I'm sorry I didn't tell you. I thought I could stop it. I was trying to save you. Tears were flowing freely down my cheeks. What's happening? Prude asked, his voice rising. I tried speaking, but couldn't. I took a shaky breath. He said he's sorry, and he was trying to protect me. That isn't your father. I know it's difficult, but we're very close. Just a few more seconds. The sound of a struggle came out of the player, grunting and straining. I called out for my father to no response. His voice warped and a sharp cry rang out, followed by a loud bang. Static broke in over the tape, then an ear-splitting screech. I winced in pain and barely made out Pruitt instructing me to turn it off. I hit the stop button. I wiped the tears away and slammed my fist onto the counter, spending a moment to collect myself. Did you stop the tape? Pruitt asked. Yes. I managed. Good, he replied. You did well. I'm sorry to put you through that. I told him what happened at the end. He conversed with his partners for a moment before speaking back into the receiver. I think we have enough. I suggest removing the tape and keeping it and the player separate from now on. Don't play it again. Remember my advice from our talk. I'll call you as soon as we crack this. He ended the call and I injected the tape placing it on the counter. I put the player in the hall closet. I needed to get out of the house for a while. I grabbed my things and went out the door, hoping a walk would calm me down. My father's voice played on repeat as I moved down the sidewalk to no particular destination. Even if it wasn't really him, the ramifications were immense. I had definite proof of something supernatural. Dangerous, but supernatural nonetheless. Whether it was an afterlife or other form of cosmic existence, I wasn't sure. I just knew that there was something else out there. I woke up late the next day, my body finally giving in to exhaustion in the early hours of the morning. The first thing I did was check my phone. No calls from Pruitt. After showering and getting ready, I sat on a bar stool at the counter and stared at the tape. I had never been so afraid of something and fascinated by it at the same time. That made the fear more potent. I cycled through my list of options. I needed to give it to someone or else it would drive me to the same end as my father. From the sound of it, Pruitt would suffer the same fate, only at a more rapid pace. Maybe one of his partners would understand and could take it. Surely they would be the best option since they already knew what we were dealing with. I mentally moved them to the top of the list. It was possible they knew someone else we could pass it along to as well, if we needed to buy extra time. 
It felt strange going over contingencies knowing that I would be condemning another person. I wished it wouldn't come to that. Honestly, I wasn't sure if I would be able to willingly keep the cycle going. The entity could have been at this for decades if the tape was any indication. Unless it had to use something analog, maybe its presence caused digital interference. I became very aware of how my only knowledge of the supernatural was exclusively informed by entertainment and that I was nowhere near qualified enough to make conjectures. The phone rang. Pruitt. I answered, not knowing if I should expect good or bad news. Hello? I couldn't hear him clearly. He sounded far away from the phone. His voice contained more than a hint of urgency. We need to meet. There may be... Hang on. Are you hearing that? Or is it just on my end? I lowered the phone and looked at the tape player where Pruitt's voice was coming from. I think we might have a bad connection. The noise makes it difficult to parse anything. Pruitt? I began slowly. Can you still hear me? Yes, but the line keeps breaking up. You're talking through the tape recorder, I said, feeling the knot in my stomach move up through my chest. Your voice is coming through the speaker on it, not my phone. The line went silent and the hum started again. Same address as before, as fast as you can, came his delayed but rapid response. Bring only yourself. Got it. I hung up and went out the door, grabbing my coat and keys off the hook. As I left the house behind me, the hum ceased, and I drew a sharp breath of cold air. It wasn't until I was inside the car and turning onto the road that I exhaled. It was comforting to put distance between myself and home to leave the impossible behind and move toward explanation. Some small part of my brain still held to a semblance of rationality, still convinced that none of it was real. A very small part that was shrinking with every mile I drove. I pulled up to the gate at the train yard. A truck was parked off to the side, snowy sets of footprints leading from it to the gate. I stopped next to it and followed suit moving swiftly through the bent metal bars and towards the door where we had our first meeting. The tower loomed against the gray, standing as a tall reminder of abandonment and industry. I reached the door and knocked twice with the side of my fist. I was greeted by a woman. Her short hair poked out from below a wool cap, and her coat seemed a size too large for her frame. She ushered me inside and closed the door quickly. Pruitt was walking across the room towards us, Behind him, another man, stocky and bearded, was tending the barrel fire. A folding table was set up next to it, with various papers and trinkets scattered about. That was you on the phone, right? I asked. Yes, Pruitt answered as he reached me. I would be disappointed if you weren't cautious. That's one way to describe it, I retorted. He looked me up and down. I didn't bring anything with me. You couldn't make me if you tried. Although it's best we both keep our guard up. I agree, he answered. Forgive my manners. Uh, this is Beatrice and this is Gordon. They have been assisting me and are the closest things to experts on our situation that there are, even if they refute the claim. I nodded to Gordon and it was returned, and I held my hand out to Beatrice. Sam. She shook it firmly, almost professionally. Wish you were under better circumstances she said in lieu of a greeting. We've been trying to stop things like this for a long time. It's never the same, and I won't lie and say they all had happy endings. I will say, however, 
that we have experience, knowledge, and determination on our side, which have brought us through many dark paths to see the sun shine again. We are prepared to do whatever it takes to make sure no one else gets hurt. While she was talking, Gordon had left his position and sidled up next to her. She talks like this by default, I think, he said, offering his hand and giving mine a single shake. But what she says is true. We take a lot of things for granted each day, and normality is number one. Something like this doesn't disrupt your life, it reshapes it. Irreversibly. You've been drawn into a world that few know of, even fewer can handle, and none can fully comprehend. He gave a slight smile. Welcome to the club. Let's make sure you get to stick around for it, yeah? I found myself returning the smile. The past few days had been dark, but having a group of people sharing the experience was a font of hope that I didn't think could exist. What have you found? I asked, looking around at them. A containment method, Beatrice said. We can cut it off from whatever it's connected to, then we can safely destroy it. Fantastic. That sounds easy, I replied. If it sounds easy, then you can be guaranteed it won't be, she continued. We have a plan, but the success of it depends heavily on you. We've already made preparations, but we need you to do something. We need you to play the tape again. What's the catch? We need you to play it at your father's house, Gordon interjected. More specifically, in his bedroom. It will be strongest there, with the combined trauma of the living and dead forming a direct link between it and the other side. But that strength is also its weakness. Once it connects directly to the source, we'll sever the tie. If we focus it into a single connecting channel, nothing will remain holding on to it when the bond is broken. Prude put his hands in his pockets. I know what we're asking of you, but if there's another way, we haven't found it. We believe this to be a paired deal, Beatrice added. The tape and player are separate pieces but are linked to the same source. We have to get them both at the same time. I steeled myself. What's the plan? Beatrice took a breath. We go in together, Prude and yourself in the bedroom, Gordon and I in the hallway outside. We'll set up everything and give you the go-ahead, then you just need to put the tape in and press play. We can't directly interfere with the process until the right moment, or we may lose our chance. Once things are in motion, there's no stopping it, Gordon said softly. It has to be seen through to whatever end. I know you want it gone, and from what I've heard, you aren't willing to pass it along to someone else. That buys you a lot of goodwill with us and the like, but that doesn't mean anything to what we're facing. No one here would blame you for wanting to take a different route if you have a change of heart. I looked around at their faces, sullen and serious. I felt as though I were standing on a cliff edge, one foot dangling over open air. Once the choice was made, it was final. I looked to Pruitt. It took my father. It's trying to use him to get me. I'll be damned if it gets anyone else. He nodded and put a hand on my shoulder. We need to do it quickly, Beatrice said. By all counts, your time is short. I trust you put the symbol up in your house? Two of them, actually, just to be sure, I replied. Good, she said. If you hadn't, we may not have had a chance to meet. Let's pack up and head out. We'll follow you, if you don't mind. I pulled into my driveway and left the car running as I went inside to gather the tape and player. The others waited, and when I returned, Gordon was standing next to my car. I was hoping to catch a ride. We'd like to split them between us, he said, just as a precaution. No argument on my end, I replied. I handed the tape to him gently, 
and he took it the same. He placed it in his pocket and got into the passenger seat as I walked over to the truck. Beatrice rolled down the driver's window and I passed the player in, her handing it to Pruitt. He set it on his lap and folded his hands over it. It's not far from here, I said. Beatrice nodded. I felt I should say something else, but the words wouldn't form. Instead, I went back to my car. A good portion of the drive was mostly quiet, with Gordon leaning his head back, eyes closed as he muttered intermittently to himself. Suddenly, he stopped and opened his eyes. It's part of my preparations, he said. I need to be in the right headspace. He withdrew the tape and turned it over in his hands. If you do this long enough, you start becoming paranoid about every little object or sound you hear. How many times have I been close to one of these in my life, I wonder? How many times have I heard or seen something that I couldn't explain and passed it over to keep living my normal life? I know that statistically almost all of those were something mundane, but that's the word, isn't it? Almost. There's a chance some of those were like our friend here. And that's just my personal experience. There are countless stories of events like that all over the world. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who doesn't have a memory of something they can't explain. I glanced at him, then back to the road. If this succeeds and we don't die, would you care to share some of the things you've dealt with in this line of work? I asked. You buy us drinks after, and I'll be more than happy to spill some beans. He chuckled. I wouldn't call it my job, though. We all have steady paychecks elsewhere since otherworldly work doesn't exactly pay the bills. I view it as a community service. If I have the means to protect people from the unknowable, then I'll continue to do that as long as I'm here. There are very few people like Beatrice and myself, and Pruitt, that are not only aware of the hidden danger we all face, but are equipped to fight back. After today's events, you may even be on that list. If all goes well, consider me in, I said. How long have you all worked together? Oh, a long time, he answered. Well, a long time for Beatrice and me. Just hit 11 years. Pruitt dipped his toes in a few years ago. That's how we all met. He was like you. Normal life upended by the paranormal, supernatural, whatever you want to call it. We heard through contacts that he was asking around for help with a haunted shed. We got in touch and took care of it for him, and he took it upon himself to ingest as much esoterica we could provide. I guess you could say he's our intern, he said with a grin. He reached out to us when he learned what was going on here. After you've been directly exposed to the other, you develop certain sensitivities to it, which is great for us because it makes finding legitimate threats easier. It's also bad for us because it makes us more susceptible to those threats. He paused for a moment. Was it haunted? I asked. No, as it turns out. A penny on the floor underneath a shelf had become a totem. Or maybe it was always one and had only then become strong enough to influence its surroundings. Things moving on their own, whispers behind you, cold spots, all the quintessential hallmarks of a classic ghost. It took us a while to find it, but after we disposed of it, all activity stopped. I turned onto the road for the house. It was silent as we approached our destination, the house growing larger in the deep gray, at once familiar and foreboding. Beatrice followed close behind. I have to ask, I said as I pulled into the driveway. Are ghosts real? I'm going with maybe, Gordon said after a pause. I haven't personally seen or read anything proving their existence, but taking into account everything that I have witnessed, I wouldn't be shocked. 
there's still a lot out there. And before you go any further, don't start with cryptids either. Lots of opinions about those in our small circles. The truck pulled up next to me, and we all made our way inside. The air was stale and chilled. Russo had lowered the thermostat to keep the electric bill in check while the house was unoccupied. Per instructions, I removed the hinges from the bedroom doorframe and placed the door in the guest room. The group set up a folding table in the hallway and unloaded their gear. It resembled a flea market hodgepodge, but meticulously organized. Old bells, books, and baubles were set out, but nothing that took an external power source. We can't be too careful, Beatrice explained as she reached across the table to place a carved wooden figurine of a deer next to others of various animals. We bring more than we need and no electronics. The tape and player were sitting on the bed. She looked up and saw me staring at them. You can feel the hum in your chest more than ever now, can't you? Yeah. Don't worry, we all feel it too. She stood up straight and surveyed her work. It's ready, she called out to the others. Gordon and Pruitt had been putting up symbols inside the bedroom, different to the one I was given. They finished and stepped out. What do those mean? I asked. What they mean? Pruitt answered. We don't actually know. They aren't based in any language we're aware of. They've been accumulated over time and from all over. What they do, though, that we know. The one I gave you is for buying time. It, I guess you could say it sort of scrambles your signal to the other side, making you harder to reach for a time before the totem gets enough power. The ones we put up are the opposite. They act as a homing beacon. Here we are. Come get us, Gordon interjected. This will make sure that when it starts, whatever's at the other end of the tape will make the strongest connection immediately, and we can get to work. We, and by we I mean I, call it the fool's trap. You'd have to be a fool to take the bait, and you'd have to be a fool to set it up in the first place. This is why Gordon and I have to stay outside during the ordeal, Beatrice chimed in. We've had enough exposure that we would almost certainly be destroyed, and with us taking steps to ensure it has full strength, I very much doubt that we could stop it from the inside. I'm not saying it's going to be easy for either of you, but you have the best odds of pulling this off while we assist and do what we can from the sidelines. She crossed her arms and drew them in, seemingly to keep the cold out. You won't like this next part. Pruitt? If we say the word, you drop everything and exit the room, no matter what happens. You do not take anything or anyone with you. You're closer to the other side than Sam, and that makes you the number one target. I need to hear you say it. Do you understand? Yes. He spoke softly. Satisfied, she turned back to Gordon and they positioned themselves with their gear. Pruitt looked over to me. It won't come to that, but we discussed this in the car and I had to make a promise. She's lost people before, and it took some convincing for her to agree with us going in together. She preferred bringing in someone else entirely, but Glenn was my friend, and it didn't set right knowing that I could help and do nothing. He looked at me. The bad news is, once you go in, you can't come out until it's over. I may be the sweeter morsel, but you're still the grand prize. That's the perk of being tethered. One of many, I'm sure, I said nervously. Let's do this quick. I told Gordon I'd buy drinks after. And I'm holding you to that, 
Gordon piped up without looking away from the items at his station. Pruitt and I stepped into the room and stood on opposite sides of the bed. Beatrice and Gordon watched intently, shoulder to shoulder, away from the door. I focused on the tape and the humming filled my body. Reaching out and picking it up, I could almost feel vibrations emanating from it. I opened the player and slotted the tape in, then gently closed it shut. As soon as it clicked, the hum stopped and a vacuum of silence took its place. I glanced at the others. My finger rested on the play button. After a beat, I pressed it for the last time. Son, a familiar voice came over the speaker. You brought me home. There isn't much time left. It didn't have the same effect on me as before. I was better prepared this time. Pruitt, I'm glad to see you. You know how dangerous this thing is. If I can't convince him alone, maybe you can. I need you to help Sam destroy this tape. It's coming. Help me save my son. In my periphery, the others moved out of sight to the table. What do you mean, it's coming? I asked. My voice surprised me with its evenness. The thing that took me, that trapped me here, came the reply. How did it take you? I don't know how, it's just that I woke up in this place. It's hard to explain, but there's a window I can see through from here to you, and it only works while the tape is running. But it wants to get through to your side, and I know it's using the tape to do that. You have to destroy it so it can't happen. I won't lose you. Sounds of a struggle came next, then screaming. It found you. Hurry. Please, Sam. I love you. Pruitt was breathing faster, but his resolve remained. Glenn Pearson is buried and gone. Sam was at the funeral. He watched his father be laid to rest, and you're using him like a mask to manipulate and terrify. More painful howls sounded, so loud this time that the audio was distorted. Almost there, Gordon called out. Items were clattering, and I could hear small scraping and thudding outside. I don't know what you buried, but it wasn't me. That empty shell wasn't me. I'm here. I'm here, and I'm begging you to save yourselves. It took a considerable amount of willpower to do what I did next. Defy my father. No, I finally answered. I won't destroy it. My dad is gone. You're a shadow, a poor copy, an echo. Nothing more. A few moments passed, and the only sound was the player whirring. My body felt heavy. My energy was being siphoned. Sweat beaded on my brow. All background noise faded. So be it. The voice had changed. The facade had broken. Across from me, Pruitt raised his arm in a stilted motion, palm facing outward toward me. He tried to lower it with his other arm, but it shot down to his side and locked in place. His expression shifted to panic as a realization dawned on him. I watched as his little finger slowly bent away from the others, then suddenly snapped backward at the middle joint. He gave a shocked cry of pain. The sound came from the speaker. Never, he called through the player, answering an unheard demand. His thumb and first finger snapped in rapid succession. I jumped across the bed to hold him in place, to try and stop more damage from happening. Before I could reach him, 
I felt a weight wrap around my torso and was lifted into the air, being squeezed by an unseen appendage. It flung me backwards into the closet, the door slamming shut as my head cracked against the side of the dresser. My vision swam and pain overrode all thought. I could hear Pruitt's screams and the others calling out to him, shouting indistinct directions or commands. With effort, I rose to my feet, steadying myself a moment before trying the knob. It turned, but the door remained closed. Shaking myself, I threw my shoulder into the door. Barely registering the pain due to the blow to my head, I slammed again and again before kicking the door above the handle. The wood splintered and groaned with each hit. Cacophonies of pain and concern continued to rise from outside. With one final burst, the door flew open and I stumbled out. Pruitt was curled up on the floor, clutching his bloodied shoulder where his arm used to be. A distorted voice was commanding to destroy the tape, saying it would stop his pain if he complied. Gordon was ringing a bell in the doorway and chanting something inaudible. Beatrice couldn't be seen. I rushed to Pruitt's side. He was still conscious, racked with agony. His lips were moving, his voice low through the speaker, repeating, Don't do it. I reached out to touch him and pulled my hand back as it was seared. A barrier of heat shimmered around him. Pruitt, I'm here, I called out. I'm here, what do I do? He gave no reply or notion that he noticed me. He was pale, no telling how much blood he had lost. His mind was in a different place, a primal place of survival. Even still, he repeated his silent mantra. Quickly, I was pushed aside. Beatrice. Her coat was off and her sleeves pulled up. She had hastily scrawled symbols on her arms in permanent marker. She knelt down and pulled Pruitt to her, slinging a leg and his remaining arm over her shoulders. Smoke billowed where she made contact and her face twisted into a grimace, but she didn't stop. Rising to her feet, she yelled through the chaos for me to stay and hauled him out of the room as Gordon stepped aside, the smell of burning flesh following her. They disappeared around the corner, and I heard her muffled cries. What do I do? I called to Gordon. Just hold on as long as you can, he called back. If that was what it did to Pruitt when its end goal was me, I didn't want to think about what was going to happen. I stood and looked at the player as the screeching and howling continued. What are you? I demanded. A reckoning beyond your comprehension, it replied inhumanly. Destroy the tape. No! I yelled in defiance. I was lifted into the air, this time held in place. Something was pulling at my limbs, overpowering my efforts to keep them tucked in. Gordon was now chanting at the top of his lungs, bell ringing its punctuation for each line. I felt something grip my skin on my stomach and pull. I screamed as I felt the skin and flesh slowly tear, the tension more than my body could handle. Blood dripped from beneath my clothes onto the floor. I was flung onto the bed. I gripped my abdomen and put pressure on the most painful spot. The player sat next to my head. Destroy it now and the torment ends, the voice commanded. You will be restored. You will be at peace. Will you heal the others? I grunted. If I destroy the tape and let you through, will they be healed and harmed no more? I made eye contact with Gordon. They will be made whole again, was the reply. My power is great and will do great things. Swear it. I pressed my wounds tighter, 
feeling my strength being replaced with tiredness. Beatrice appeared next to Gordon, her arms no longer smoking but deep red and blackened in places. She was furiously chanting alongside him, holding something small. She held it up to me, motioning pressing with her thumb. You have to swear it, I repeated. Swearing is unnecessary, as it is my will. I won't do it unless you swear it. Beatrice tossed the object, a small cylinder, onto the bed next to me. I clutched it quickly. Then the terms are agreed. I swear... I pushed the button on the top of the cylinder, and one end opened like a cap. The bell rang, and a visible wave spread from it. As it passed over me, the voice stopped, and the cylinder flew from my hand to the center of the room, landing on the floor with the open end up. A horrible squelching noise sounded as the air was sucked from my ears to the object. It was pulling whatever invisible force was in the room with me into itself, and each wave from the ringing bell forced it to move faster. One final shout in unison from the others, and it felt as if all the air left the room and my body. I tried to draw a breath but was unable to, and began to panic as my body struggled to keep itself awake and alive. Darkness crept in from the edges, and my eyes shut involuntarily as my inevitable suffocation took place. The last thought I had before becoming overwhelmed was of the cigarette, in case of emergency. I awoke in pain. I was lying in a bed in an unfamiliar place. I closed my eyes. Instinctually, I touched my stomach, but the tenderness caused me to withdraw. Fleeting memories of talking being picked up and moved. I opened my eyes again. Pruitt. Where was he? The room was small, undecorated. The walls were light blue. The door was closed. I was hooked up to medical equipment with an IV in my arm. I tried to call out, but my throat was dry. I was about to try again when the door opened. It was Gordon. Our eyes met, and he beamed. You made it, in case there was any confusion. He stood at the foot of the bed. You're safe. And healing. This isn't a hospital, but we have some friends in town. I swallowed and tried again. What about Pruitt? I asked weakly. And Beatrice? Pruitt is in an actual hospital. His injuries required more than what we're able to handle. Emergency surgery. Messy business, but it had to be done. His arm was reattached, but it's still up in the air on how much he'll be able to use it. Please don't be jealous. You were also put through the ringer, but nothing some staples, glue, and various medications can't take care of. He leaned down and produced a bottle of water from the foot of the bed, twisting the cap off and handing it to me. I gingerly sipped it, relieving my parched mouth. Beatrice refused treatment until I talked her into it. She's like that. She'll be okay. It's just more scars to the collection for her. I think she was just happy that no one died. And before you ask, it's been two days. What about the tape? Inert, he answered. You bought us enough time to sever the connection. We transferred the energy left on our side to safe containment. We'll keep it locked away until it dissipates. That's the usual procedure. He looked up at the ceiling and sighed. I'm sorry things happen this way, he said. We never want people to get hurt, and we go out of our way to make sure that doesn't happen, but sometimes, sometimes it's unavoidable. And this was one of those times. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what everyone endured. 
Beatrice took a huge risk to get Pruitt out of there, and if she wasted a second, she wouldn't have come back. Half the group almost didn't make it, and I walked away without a scratch. A sadness was behind his eyes, but it disappeared in a flash. I've got some rounds to make. I just wanted to stop in and check on you. I'll send word that you're awake now so they can bring you some food. It's probably oatmeal and applesauce. Don't get your hopes up. We can talk more after you rest and heal. He walked away and turned before leaving. Besides, we're all waiting for you to get back on your feet. You're buying drinks, and it'll take a hell of a lot of liquor to get through this. The door shut and I leaned back on the pillow, closing my eyes. There were a million things I wanted to know, but at that moment, rest was the best idea I'd heard in a long time.